I'll be breaking down The Prince by Niccolo Machiavelli, a 16th century Italian diplomat born of Florentine nobility. My discussion will include how Machiavelli's crowning work, The Prince, a 500-year-old text authored in 1513 and made public in 1532, can be applied to your life today. Machiavelli's career in government was under the Florentine Republic, which rose after the overthrow of the Medici family. The Medici family was to eventually regain power, and upon doing so, they imprisoned and tortured a great many folks who had worked for the Florentine Republic, accusing them of various crimes. No evidence was ever produced of the supposed crimes that Machiavelli was incarcerated for. He eventually was freed from his incarceration and tortured by Giovanni de' Medici, and that was because of a general amnesty that Giovanni had offered when he became Pope Leo X. And so Machiavelli, as well as many others who were wrongly incarcerated, were freed upon that amnesty. It's important to understand that The Prince, this book, is dedicated to the magnificent Lorenzo de Piero de' Medici. And many historians say that Machiavelli did this as a attempt to get a job in the Medici regime. In the opening part of The Prince, where it speaks of this dedication, Machiavelli basically explains that those who would offer gifts to a prince are typically bringing forward a fine horse, jewelry, rare and hard-to-find things. But that which is of greatest value to Machiavelli and that which would be of greatest value to um, Lorenzo di Piero de' Medici would be Machiavelli's knowledge, his knowledge of the actions of effective rulers. And so that is why he has written this manual for the prince. So what you should understand as a reader is that to live by the principles in this book entitled The Prince is to live as an effective ruler. The Prince is not an enthralling read in the narrative format. Rather, it is a guide to power for the rulers of principalities. The Prince is no easy read and frequently references the monarchs of Machiavelli's day or the days where, you know, the days that were recently bygone at that time. Today, many of the rulers mentioned would require you to do significant research. Hence, I am needed to break down the lessons. Let us see this as a work on power how to acquire power, how to protect power. Machiavelli is best understood as an advisor, an intellectual who rarely lived the mentality that he describes in the pages that I'm going to take you through. Hence, similar to Robert Greene, he authors a work that reflects the dispositions and actions of effective leaders without having ever been one. As we enter this timeless wisdom of Machiavelli, let us begin with this quotation, quote, fortune and women are similar in that it is the bold rather than the cautious man who will win and hold them both, end quote, page seven. Chapter one, Machiavelli describes two types of principalities, those that are hereditary and those that are newly established. Quote, in chapter one, he writes on page seven, he who thinks New favors will cause great personages to forget old injuries deceives himself. This is important quotation because it's basically pointing out that people do not forget. If you have wronged someone, do not expect them to be cool with you because you're being nice today. 
Do not expect them to be cool with you because you're doing them a favor or you're smiling in their face. Even if they're smiling back at you, you can rest assured that no matter how noble that person appears, they are still holding a grudge. And if they can injure you, will do so when it is literally the worst time for it to happen to you. So remember that if you've done someone wrong, they should be categorized as an enemy. So again, the quotation reads, he who thinks new favors will cause great personages to forget old injuries deceives himself. So he's advising princes, especially those in newly established principalities, to know that the people you had to overthrow to get your power will not forget that. The people who lost power for you to gain power will not forget it. And when they can do you what you have done to them, they will take that opportunity. Now, following this, Machiavelli points out that there's a necessity to murder the overthrown prince and their family. So when you take over power as a prince, you got to kill not only the guy who used to be the head honcho, you also got to body all of his relatives as many as you can. Now, that might sound extremely ruthless. Buckle your seatbelt, folks. That's what you signed up for. The prince is basically giving you the most effective means to acquiring and maintaining power. If you do not murder all of the relatives of the former king, of the former ruler, one of those relatives can be an organizer or an organizing symbol for those who are dissatisfied. So you must eradicate his bloodline. Now ask yourself how that applies to your situations, which is to say, if you come into a new situation and you're taking over, whether it's at work and you've been, you've been hired as an executive in a company, if the person who used to have your job got demoted, that person will be a problem to you. Machiavelli would recommend that you marginalize that person as much as possible because undoubtedly they will not look well upon you now having their job. The mentality is essentially saying that those you take power from need to be murdered, ideally, or at least marginalized so that they cannot form weapons against you. Still on page seven, the next quotation. Ferdinand of Aragon accomplished great things under the cloak of religion, but in reality, he had no faith, no mercy, humanity, or integrity. Had he allowed himself to be influenced by such motives, he would have been ruined, end quote. Now, when he references Ferdinand of Aragon, he's basically saying this leader has cloaked himself in religion. That is, spoken of God, portrayed himself to be a believer so that the population looks well upon him. While all the while, underneath this cloak, he was a very shrewd, straightforward person who quickly dispensed with faith, mercy, humanity, and integrity to get done what he needed to get done. So he made the appearance of being religious but never engaged in the true actions of a religious person. And Machiavelli even writes that if he would have engaged in being merciful, faithful, humane, and showing integrity, he would have met his ruin. Which is to say that being nice among the many who are not nice will cause you to suffer. You cannot be nice 
when you're dealing with people who are ruthless. And what Machiavelli reveals over the course of this text is that most people are ruthless, just pretending to be nice. The second quotation I have for you is on page 14. Quote, men will not look at things as they really are, but as they wish them to be, end quote. This is an important thing because a true leader is able to see things as they actually are. You're one who appreciates the truth. The average person is inclined to look at things and see what they want to be there, not what is really there. This mindset actually assists a ruler because the reason Ferdinand of Aragon was able to get other people to think he was religious, if you rule a nation of Catholics and they're devout, they want to also believe that the ruler is devout. Why? Because they think Catholicism is great. Why wouldn't he be devout? That is what Machiavelli is saying on page 14 when he writes, Men look at things not as they really are, but as they wish them to be. Now moving on to chapter 2. Chapter 2 begins, begins by pointing out that hereditary principalities are easier to hold and regain as populations are already conditioned. Machiavelli elaborates that the hereditary prince has less cause to offend. It is reasonable to expect that his subjects will be naturally well disposed toward him. Page 21. What he means by that is, if you are the executive in a, a pizza restaurant, and the pizza restaurant is called Marquette's Pizza, and you became the executive because you're the son of Marquette, you're in a hereditary principality. Even though there were other people working at Marquette's Pizza who were duly qualified, they expected that you would become the next executive because your father owns the company, which is to say, even though you might not have the skills, they're going to show you the expected respect because you were expected to rule. You're in a hereditary principality. The subjects or the individuals therein are already looking at you favorably. Conversely, let's talk about new principalities. And most of us are dealing with new principalities. If you are to rule over a people with whom you share language and or culture, you will rule more easily, especially if they are not accustomed to self-rule. Neither their taxes nor laws are to be altered. Now, let me unpack those things. Firstly, he's saying if you're ruling over people with whom you share a language or a culture, which is to say if you have similarities to the people you're going to be the boss of, that's going to help you out. In my business, I opened an office in Puerto Rico and had all Puerto Rican employees. Imagine you go into your own office. You're the only person that doesn't match. Everyone else's first language is Spanish, low key. Although obviously most younger educated Puerto Ricans are fluent in English, but everyone else, else's mother tongue is Spanish. Everyone else is Latino. Conversely, my mother tongue is English. My race is black. So we're already different in those regards. So in a new principality, when you don't share a language and culture, you know that things will be more difficult for you. That's something to go in there aware of. So the second thing he points out is that Obviously, if those things are the same, it'll be easy. If they're not, it'll be more difficult. 
He says, it'll also be more easy if these people that you're ruling are not accustomed to self-rule. So there are certain cultures where people are not used to being autonomous. I also had an office in South Korea. The Koreans are more so a docile people that are in a um, a culture that is inclined to respect hierarchy, to respect the boss. So they're inclined not to necessarily think creatively or as individuals. So they're not inclined to self-rule. So it was easy for me to go in there as a leader, even as a foreigner, um, to basically lay down the law of my office because they were not inclined to self-rule. So Machiavelli is right in that regard. He says, neither their taxes nor laws are to be altered. So when you're establishing a new principality, you're not going to go in there and change a bunch of stuff, especially core things that people do not like to be changed. You don't want to play with their money. And he says, do not change their laws, which is to say their way of being should not be altered straight away. These are things that will cause uprising. So if you come into a new job as a boss, you do not want to come into the job and all of a sudden start changing people's pay rates or changing different penalties, um, creating new rules. This will surely make your rule extremely difficult. Why is that? That's because human beings psychologically struggle with overt change. And the reason for that is because most human beings are lazy. They want to keep things the same because the same is easy. Page 22, quote, natural and common necessity, which always causes a new prince to burden those who have submitted to him with his soldiery and infinite other hardships, which he must put upon this new acquisition. I'm going to read that one more time. Natural and common necessity, which always causes a new prince to burden those who have submitted to him with his soldiery and with infinite other hardships, which he must put upon his new acquisition. That really needs to be broken down. What he's saying is that when you've acquired a new territory, it is necessary for you to have your soldiers there. Why is that? Because these people don't know you. They don't respect you. And you need to have someone there to protect you and maintain the order that you're establishing. He says you'll have to put them under infinite other hardships, which is to say that when, when you take over, things are going to change. Do not intentionally change core things like taxes and laws. Change as little as possible. You want to have continuity between the old and the new because too much change will be troublesome for you and the subjects. But you're going to have to put them under hardship. And because of that, you must have your soldiery there in that territory, which is to say, if you take over a new position in a job or, hey, you move into a new neighborhood, like, for example, I grew up in a ghetto. If you move into a new neighborhood and you want to be a big deal there, you best believe you're going to need some friends there to protect you and to maintain your safety and help you establish your power. So anytime you come into a new situation to have some soldiers there with you, allies, is going to be very helpful. Never think you can do it alone. Continuing on page 22, quote, In this way, you have enemies in all those whom you have injured in seizing that principality. I said that previously. Anytime you acquire power, someone else has lost power. Quote, in entering a province, one has always need of the goodwill of the natives, end quote. 
That is to say, when it, wherever you go into, the people who are already there, you will need some of them to look upon you favorably, ideally as many as possible. But the truth is that you cannot rule a land or a people unless you have a significant number of them who support you, who look upon you with goodwill. They might not necessarily be running out to do your bidding, but at least they're saying, let's see what this guy's going to do. They're giving you some goodwill. They're assuming you have good intentions. Moving on to page 24, quote, when states are acquired in a country differing in language, customs, or laws, there are difficulties and good fortune and great energy are needed to hold them. And one of the greatest and most real helps would be that he who has acquired them should go and reside there. This would make his position more secure and durable as it has made that of the Turk in Greece, end quote. Very important passage. What he's essentially saying is when you take over a new land and you are different in language and customs and laws, you are becoming the leader of essentially a foreign population. You should wedge yourself within that population, live there, be among the people, one, so that they can see you and know you and come to learn you and become familiar with you and build rapport with you, but also so that you may see them, know them, and understand them. As the axiom goes, you want your friends close and your enemies closer. When you've taken over a new territory, you must assume anyone could be an enemy because you do not know these people. You must learn them, so you must go among them. Page 24, quote, If one is on the spot, disorders are seen as they spring up and one can quickly remedy them. But if one is not at hand, they are heard only when they are great and then one can no longer remedy them. Ooh, that page 24 quote was very meaningful. He's saying when you are among the people, you're on the spot. If people start to act up, you can quickly lay them down and solve that situation. However, if you are not at hand, if you're out of town and people are in your town talking reckless, building up discontent, by the time you hear about that problem, it may be too big a problem for you to solve it. So always stay on the scene. Stay on the scene like a sex machine. Quote from page 25. Those whom, those whom he offends remaining poor and scattered are never able to injure him, end quote. He's basically saying that if the prince hurts someone, let them remain poor, meaning without resources. Let them remain dispersed, meaning unable to organize and gather together because when they're disunited and poor, they're weak. Now, this may make you think about today. Maybe... This COVID-19 thing keeping you dispersed and poor, meaning without a job and unable to gather together because of social distancing. That makes it hard for you to protest, doesn't it? That makes it hard for you to organize, doesn't it? Yeah, ponder that. Another quote from page 25. Quote, men ought either to be well treated or crushed. 
because they can avenge themselves of lighter injuries, of more serious ones they cannot. Therefore, the injury that is to be done to a man ought to be of such a kind that one does not stand in fear of revenge, end quote. Me personally growing up in a ghetto, this one is close to my heart because often when you engage in a beef with someone, say you have a fight with them and you win the fight, but you haven't crippled them, you haven't killed them. You have to worry about them showing back up with a gun or a knife or other people and jumping you. Machiavelli is essentially saying that either you treat people well or you crush them, meaning you completely destroy them so that they are too weak to get revenge. You put so much fear in them that they will never seek revenge because if you injure them lightly, that'll just piss them off and then they'll surely come back to attack you. So he says, make sure that what you do is devastating. Page 27, quote, In the beginning of the malady, it is easy to cure, but difficult to detect. But in the course of time, not having either been detected or treated in the beginning, it becomes easy to detect, but difficult to cure. It switches. So basically, Machiavelli is saying that to protect power, you must be ever vigilant. When a problem is getting started, it's easy to cure early on, but it's hard to detect, which is why you must have the ever watchful eye. He's saying once a problem is easy to detect, it's probably hard to cure at that point because the sickness has spread so much. The discontent has spread so much. If you're a manager of people at your job and your subordinates are starting to talk trash about you and instead of nipping it in the bud when it was just two people, now there are rumors spinning around among 20, 30 people. It's too late. You're going to get fired soon because you let it get out of control. It can't be cured. If it was just two people, you could have pulled them aside and say, hey, I hear that you said the following. I want to let you know it's against company policy to slander. If this continues, there will be disciplinary action. Could have nipped it in the bud, but if you let it grow, next thing you know, that gossip is going up the ladder and you are going to be falling down the ladder. Chapter three. Chapter three is a vigilance. It is replete with examples that teach that power must be protected and that if it is not growing, it is shrinking. Power must be grown consistently, if only by centimeters. And here's a quotation from Marquette Devon Burton, the saint and the sinner. This quotation was inspired by page 31. I write, quote, war is not to be avoided, only deferred until it is to your advantage. What inspired me to write that quotation is basically in chapter three, Machiavelli is saying that war is a natural part of human affairs. You will have to fight in some form. You do not avoid war because it's a bad thing. You do not avoid war indefinitely. You put it off until you're in the stronger position and then you wage war and devastate your enemies. War is necessary. 
But war should only be done when you have the true advantage. Chapter 4. Of the two modes of governing principalities. Mode 1 is to govern for a prince to govern with a body of servants acting as ministers. Mode 2 is for a prince to govern with barons who hold such positions by heritage, not by the power of the prince. Page 33. So let me differentiate these two different modes if that wasn't clear. So the mode one is basically the prince is the monarch. They're the supreme leader and they have identified or appointed ministers to do certain jobs on their behalf. The second mode is the prince is ruling a land. Maybe he took over a land, whatever the case is, but there are barons or shall we say governors of certain territories that are not as high as the prince. They're definitely below the prince, but the reason they're ruling that territory is because of heredity. They've always, their family has always ruled that territory, which means the prince did not give them their power. They have their power separate from the prince, which means that the people in that area respect them already without the prince saying, you need to follow this guy's direction. In discussing the first mode of governing, which is where the prince basically appoints his ministers. This kind of mode of government, this kind of principality, it's hard to conquer and easy to hold, which is to say, if this is the way a land is being governed, it's very difficult to conquer. But once you conquer it, it's easy to keep it, given, of course, that you murder the prince and much of his family, right? As much as possible. The reason that that form of government is hard to conquer is because the prince has all the power and the ministers are loyal to the prince. Why? Because they get their power from the prince because he appointed them. So they're unified. That's why it's hard to conquer a territory where everyone is unified. But it's easy to hold because once you conquer it, meaning you've murdered the prince and all of his family, basically everyone's going to fall in line. There are no other power bases in that land. You removed the single power base. There's now a vacuum for you to control. Governing mode number two, which is basically when there's a prince and then there are other barons or governors who hold such position by heritage, meaning that they didn't get their power from the prince. They were already running that area and the people respect them. This kind of principality is easy to conquer, hard to hold. It's easy to conquer because the prince is theoretically ruling all of the, the total land. He's ruling the barons, but each baron has their own little territory within the principality. And the reason it's easy to conquer is because if you can go in and flip one of those barons and get one of those barons to decide to revolt, or even better, get multiple barons, get multiple governors to decide to revolt, it's easy for you to take over because you have the support of people within that prince's territory. Think of it this way. Today, we see that Trump wants to do certain things in terms of reopening the economy at a certain speed. Certain governors, like the governor of California, governor of New York, these are barons who are saying, no, we're not going to, we're not going to open. Now, if for some reason they wanted to have a revolt against Trump and Russia came in and said, hey, we think Trump's a bad guy. Why don't you work with us? 
if certain governors decide to work with Russia and they already these governors have the real support of their people, it'd be easier for Russia to invade. That's why it's easy to conquer the second mode of government in which there's a prince with barons or shall we say a leader with governors. This kind of principality is easy to conquer but hard to hold. It's hard to hold because the barons who allowed the new prince to come in and take power, well, they're still there. These barons can do the same thing to the new prince that they did to the former prince. Chapter, actually, before we go into that chapter, let me just give you a little summary so you can easily apply this to your life. What that is essentially saying is that it's ideal for you to, as a ruler, use the first mode of governing, wherein you have all the power and the other people who have power only have power because of your ordination, because you have given them power. That means they will be vested in you maintaining power because when you lose power, they lose power. So always remember, you want to hire people that you give power. When you come into a power structure where people have power independent of you and you're the ruler, that means that you're going to be in a weaker position, which is why I said earlier, power is always in need of growth. If it's not growing, it's shrinking. Chapter five, of governing formerly free people. What we mean by this is that you've taken over a territory and now you have the task of ruling a people who used to have freedom, meaning they used to be in a republic, not under a monarch. There are three ways that you could possibly maintain power. Method one, crush the people with violence. Method two, live in the new territory. Number three, allow the people to maintain their laws, draw a tribute from them, and then establish an oligarchy. And to clarify number three, when we say maintain their laws, meaning don't make a lot of changes, draw tribute, meaning make them pay you money and basically taking a tax from them, and then establish an oligarchy, which is to take the people who are already popular there or already rulers and have them rule that land on your behalf. They kind of work for you. Machiavelli says that of these three ways to maintain power, there's really only one that works when you're encountering a people who have enjoyed liberty. Always having liberty as a watchword, the only way to govern formerly free people is to crush them totally. Time and gifts will not bring them to your favor. Page 38. Those formerly of a republic as opposed to a principality, can only be overcome by being destroyed or occupied. Allowing them to maintain their way is not an option. So he's saying either you have to live among the people and have your soldiers there and make sure you're, you're growing with them, they're learning you, you're building up that rapport with a very intimate relationship, or you have to crush them, meaning use force and force them to do what you want. So either you got to be among them or you got to crush them with violence, one or the other. But what you cannot do is allow them to maintain things the way they were before because they were formerly free, but you're the prince. Now that you're in charge, they're not free. They're under the rule of a monarch. They are subjects. They are not citizens. So that's an important thing to know. And it again reinforces some previous lessons that were mentioned, which is number one, it's always best to 
to put yourself within the people, to know the people, to have them know you, but not really know you, just know the veneer of what you are showing to them. Remember Ferdinand of Aragon, who cloaked himself in religion, and also to know that sometimes you have to use the iron fist. Some peoples must be crushed. Going on to page 40, quote, a wise man ought always to follow the paths beaten by great men and to imitate those who have been supreme, end quote. Very clear. A wise man follows the paths beaten by great men. If you're going to imitate someone, don't imitate someone who did all right. Imitate the person who was at the very apex. And if you're Machiavelli, it doesn't matter if that person was Gandhi or Hitler. Machiavelli studying this person because they were effective, not because they were pious. Page 42, quote, the innovator has for enemies all of those who have done well under the old conditions and lukewarm defenders in those who may do well in the new conditions. Let me read that one more time. This is meaningful. The innovator has for enemies all of those who have done well under the old conditions and lukewarm defenders in those who may do well under the new. That's page 42. What Machiavelli is saying, if you're one who is bringing change, anyone who's going to lose status, anyone who's been happy the way things were, oh, they're going to be your enemy. They're going to hate you. And the worst part is that not only do you have enemies because you're trying to bring a change, the people who might benefit from the change, they're just lukewarm. They're not even gung-ho supporters because they might benefit from the change. It's not real yet. They haven't experienced it. So they're not going to step forward to be very strong proponents of what you're doing. So that's something to be keenly aware of. You'll have real enemies and half-assed friends when you're bringing change. That's why if you do bring change or innovation, it should be slight or it should not be overt. And what I'm talking about is when you're bringing change within a land or within a culture of a business or within a family, you need to remember that sometimes people don't like change, know who they are, and be ready to combat them. Going on to chapter 7. In chapter 7, Machiavelli recounts a story of a duke who inherited a state overwhelmed by crime, knowing that it would take a heavy hand to establish the rule of law in the land. He appointed a cruel man to do the work, and the work was done. The subjects appreciated the restoration of civilization, but thought the duke a harsh ruler. To re redirect the hatred from himself, the duke proclaimed that all cruelty occurred without his knowledge and was solely due to the harshness of his minister, the man that he appointed. The Duke made a spectacle of executing the minister, thereby restoring a positive light on himself. In summary, the Duke used his minister to employ the harshness needed to stabilize the Duke's rule and then disposed of him when he was no longer useful. Using the minister as a pawn, he hid his iron fist within a velvet glove. Moral of the story, if you can escape blame, do it. Machiavelli basically has shared this story with you to say, 
there, there are harsh things that got to happen sometimes. And the people, the citizens, your family, whoever the people are, they can't handle the truth. They're living in a, a, a state, a country that's overwhelmed with crime. When you have a place that's overwhelmed with crime, like say in the third world where wages are low and the police will engage in bribery, they'll engage in underhanded things to supplement their income. You don't have the money to pay the police the wages they deserve. The only thing that will really clean up that land from the criminals and the police misconduct is an iron fist. You got to be mean. You got to be vicious. You have to have draconian policies. But if you are mean and vicious, the people will like, oh boy, this guy is a killer. He's a dictator. So what this Duke did was he appointed a guy who he knew would get the job done. And once that guy did the harsh things that were called for, he then said, oh no, like I would never let anyone Murder, I would never let anyone do things that are cruel. I didn't approve of that. I agree with you guys. I agree with the citizens. So I'm going to punish this guy. We're going to hang him. So the Duke benefited from cleaning up the society. Now the society respects the rule of law. They respect the police. The police are not committing misconduct. And the people, the citizens, the subjects still think the Duke is a great guy who does not do cruel things. That's high-level game right there, ladies and gentlemen. And, and you should know that the people who are ruling your societies, whether you're in Germany today or the United States, this is why I didn't go into politics, these people are supremely wicked. That's why it never surprises me the things that they are actually doing while pretending to be nice. On page 53, Machiavelli expresses the following. An effective prince knows the following is necessary to secure himself in his new principality, to win friends, to overcome either by force or fraud, to make himself beloved and feared by the people, to be obeyed and revered by the soldiers, to exterminate those who have power or reason to hurt him, to change the old order of things for new, to be severe and gracious, magnanimous, and liberal to destroy a disloyal soldiery and to create new, to maintain friendship with kings and princes in such a way that they help him with zeal and offend with caution. Beautiful quotation reminds me of The Art of War by the Master Sun Tzu. Now, let me break this apart. These are all of the things that are necessary for a prince to secure himself in his principality, and take note, these are the things that are necessary for you to secure your power and influence within the principalities that you govern, whether it be as the head of your family, as the boss in your company, as the OG in your neighborhood, whatever the case is. Number one, to win friends. You need teamwork to make the dream work. You have to have supporters. To overcome either by force or fraud which is to say, do what it takes to dominate. Whether you have to lay a hand on someone, whether you have to trick someone, whatever must be done, do it. It says, make yourself beloved and feared. This is a paradox, but definitely doable. How is it that you can make people love you, but also know that you will lay the hammer when it's necessary? 
to be obeyed and revered by your soldiers. This is something that has to be developed, but is absolutely critical because your soldiers are those who protect you. They're also those who have the easiest way to kill you or overthrow you. Your soldiers are those who exercise power and force on your behalf. Think about who are those people in your life and how can you make sure that they are deeply loyal to you. It says to exterminate those who have power or reason to hurt you. Now, that might sound extra ruthless. If someone else has power, you got to exterminate them. But remember, power is always growing or shrinking. If you're allowing others to hold power, you're allowing your power to be at threat. If someone has reason to hurt you, please know they are an enemy. And please know enemies will do things that will allow them to be known by that term of enemy. If they're an enemy, they're not going to sit back and do nothing and just be cool with you. They may be not doing anything at the moment, but that means they're plotting and planning or waiting for the opportunity. Never let them rest. Constantly strike at them so that you can disable them. It says to be severe and gracious, which is to say, do good things, say good things, be kind, make sure that people are observing that. And when people transgress, be very severe. And that is how you become feared among the people. It says destroy a disloyal soldiery and create a new one. Meaning that if you take over a company and you know there are employees that are disgruntled, slowly move them out, send them packing, fire them, and bring in ones that will be competent and loyal to you. It says maintain friendships with kings and princes in such a way that they help with zeal and offend with caution, which is to say that your friendships should be with those who are powerful. And those who are powerful should be happy to help you. You must consider doing them favors and let them know that with your success, they succeed. And make sure that they know, even though you speak softly, you carry a big stick. And you will beat them to fucking death if they offend you. So they should be very cautious about offending you. Chapter 8, Attaining Principalities by Wickedness. Quote, For injuries ought to be done all at once, so that being tasted less, they offend less. Benefits ought to be given little by little, so that the favor of them may last longer. I like that, don't you? It's essentially saying if you have to do something foul, do it all at once. All the bad news should be collected together, delivered all at once so that it is tasted less, so it's easier to forget. But if you're going to do something good, stretch it out, make it last, make it long. Give out the benefits bit by bit so they remember and are reminded of your goodness. And that is pretty much what you should gather from chapter 8. Chapter 9, Civil Principalities. From page 61, quote, he who obtains sovereignty by the assistance of the nobles maintains himself with more difficulty than he who comes to it by aid of the people, because the former finds himself with many around him who consider themselves his equals. And because of, the, because of this, he can neither rule nor manage them to his liking. But he who reaches sovereignty by popular favor finds himself alone. 
and has none around him or few who are not prepared to obey him, end quote. What this quotation is basically expressing is that if you come to power by what are called nobles, meaning if other powerful people bring you into power, they make you the leader, they consider themselves your equal. Some of them will consider themselves more powerful than you, which America being a plutocracy, meaning a government run by the wealthy, if you take the assistance of Bill Gates or Bloomberg and these wealthy men put you into power as president, you can bet your ass that once you're president, they will believe themselves to be your equal or even to be your ruler. They will be asking you for favors and they will be ready to replace you when you don't do what they want you to do. Conversely, if you come into power by the will of the people, by popular demand, there will be none who believe themselves to be your equal and people will be willing to obey you and therefore there will be few looking to overthrow you. So when the people put you in power, your principality can be held stronger and longer. So let's go on to the next one, page 62. Quote, Besides this, one cannot by fair dealing and without injury to others satisfy the nobles, but you can satisfy the people for their object is more righteous than that of the nobles, the latter wishing to oppress while the former only desiring not to be oppressed, end quote, which is to say that if the nobles, if the wealthy class, if powerful people put you in power, you can never satisfy them. They always want more things from you. And what's worse, they're going to want things from you that are going to hurt other people. The nobles are going to want you to do them a favor that might hurt other nobles. The nobles might want you to give them power to do something that might oppress the people, oppress the population. So it's going to cause you problems inevitably. Conversely, the people, when they put you in power, all they really want is to not be done wrong. All they want is to live a decent life. They're not going to ask you for a ton of favors because average people are average because they don't expect much out of life. So there won't be much that you will have to do because they will not feel owed a whole lot. They're easy to get to be satisfied. Think about it. Barack Obama and black folks, when he became president, truth is, he didn't do much for black people. Nothing I can name. In fact, if I look at my personal experience, I had to pay the government like 400 bucks for a fine for not having health insurance. That's all that I experienced of the Obama administration. There was no other benefit, tangible benefit for me. There was only that cost. With Donald Trump, I've not had to pay any fines and I got a check, a stimulus check, right? So in that case, there is a reward. But the fact is, whether it's Obama or Barack, in either case, the average person is getting nearly nothing. Their only true wish is to not be oppressed. They're not making big demands. They're not trying to radically change things. I can summarize chapter 10, which is on ecclesiastical principalities, which is to say, Ecclesiastical is of relating to Christianity. On ecclesiastical principalities, they are, quote, are, are sustained by the ancient ordinances of religion, which are so all-powerful 
and of such character that the principalities may be held no matter how their princes behave and live. End quote, page 69. That's the whole meaning of chapter 10 as it relates to your life, which is to say that religion is such a powerful thing to most religious people, the true believers, that if a prince supposedly was ruling that nation by divine right, meaning chosen by God, then they can scarcely be removed irrespective of how they behave because God put them there. So who are you to disagree with God? And constantly, not constantly, but regularly, you see the, the subtle indication by Machiavelli that whatever you do, you should certainly drip some religion on it. Ask yourself, as I will ask in my voice, how can I have an ecclesiastical principality? How can I say that God put me here to rule? Yes, who will believe that? What group of people will believe that? Because if you can get that behind you, then the strength of your principality is something that can really something that has no limit. Going on to chapter 12 and 13 on soldiers and mercenaries. Again, the entire chapter can be encapsulated in the following. Mercenaries are murder for hire, strangers who fight for neither flag nor God and will falter when they are most needed. A well-trained soldier drawn from supportive citizens is best. That's actually a quotation from Marquette Devon Burton, the saint and the sinner. And let me dig into this a little bit because this does relate to our day. A mercenary is essentially a soldier that you're paying to soldier. You're paying them to engage on behalf of your nation. In some ways, you might even say those who are conscripted or forced or drafted into the army are mercenaries. Because historically, men and boys would say, hey, I'm going to fight for my family. I'm going to fight for my people. They didn't need to be paid. They didn't need to be forced. That's because they were actually fighting for something they cared about. Now, with all of these wars, most of which are really wars in which the wealthy classes of different nations are vying for resources, power, and capital, and the wars are fought by the poor and disenfranchised. So these poor and disenfranchised folks are paid pennies, and they're essentially murderers for hire. They're mercenaries. No disrespect to anyone who is a true patriot and American and wanted to serve their country. Much respect to you. But the thing you must consider, the reason mercenaries are not as good as soldiers, is because a mercenary is essentially fighting for a check. You and I both probably know some folks who are in the army because they didn't have anything better to do. They weren't going to go straight into college. They weren't a scholarly person, a studious, hardworking person in school. So they decided to go into the army, not, you know, obviously there are people who went to West Point who have always wanted to do this, they have military families, they have honor. But most people in the army, I'm going to call a spade a spade or just there because it's a check and it's structure and they want to move out of their mom's house. Whereas when you look at people who are real soldiers, soldiers are people who fight for either flag or family or God. These are true believers who have taken up arms for a just cause. The reason that mercenaries can't beat soldiers is the same thing you saw played out in Vietnam. 
when Americans basically invaded Vietnam for no good reason and the Vietnamese were willing to crawl through those small holes in the ground, tunnels that were dug out and were very tight where they would crawl through there with very little oxygen and the American soldiers were scared to go in there. Why? Because they're mercenaries. They're fighting for money. They're fighting for a rich man's war. Whereas the Vietnamese were willing to crawl through there because they were fighting for their lives, for their dignity. The reason the terrorists are hard to beat because they're fighting for their God. They're fighting for their country's self-determination to live in the way they want to live. That's why they're willing to blow themselves up without second thought, whereas Americans are not even trying to, they're trying to get in the army, get paid and get out of the army and go to college for free without a scratch on them, right? It's hard to compete uh, with a, have a mercenary compete with a soldier. So I just want to point that out, which is to say, if you ever have to build a soldiery or an army or people who are going to ride for you, please know it's not the money that will get the best out of them. It's their dedication to your flag, your family, or your God. Now moving on to chapter 14. This is entitled Art of War. Quote from page 87. Quote, a prince ought to have no other aim or thought, nor select anything else for his study than war and its rules and disciplines. For this is the sole art that belongs to him who rules. And it is of such force that it it not only upholds those who are born princes, but it often enables men to rise from private station to that rank. And on the contrary, it is seen that when princes have thought more of ease than of arms, they have lost their states. Whee! What Machiavelli is saying is that your number one study should be of war because war is the thing that gives you the power. War is the thing that maintains your power and war is the thing that will take away your power. So if you have not become a master of warfare, surely you will shortly be no longer a prince. You will be a common citizen or a person who's walking around without a head because you will lose it in war along with your principality. Here's another quotation from Marquette Devon Burton, the saint and the sinner. War should eternally occupy the mind of a leader, either reflecting on the past war or anticipating the next, end quote. Chapter 15 is on liberality and meanness. From page 94, quote, Liberality exercised in a way that does not bring you the reputation for it injures you. For if one exercises it honestly and as it should be exercised, it may not become known and you will not avoid the reproach of its opposite, end quote. Let me break this one down. It says liberality exercised in a way that does not bring you reputation for it injures you. What does that mean? Say that you're one who does good and you donate a lot of money. If you're donating a lot of money to many causes, but nobody knows, you're being liberal and you're doing it in a way that does not bring you reputation for it. Machiavelli says that injures you. It does injure you you because you're losing a lot of money, but you're not getting any direct benefit. Your reputation is not soaring and you're becoming poor because of your liberality. 
Machiavelli goes on to further say, for if one exercises it, that is liberality, honestly, as it should be exercised, it may not become known. Meaning that if you're going to be giving, you probably should do it low key. I think that's general sentiment among the people. He puts, it may not become known and you will not avoid the reproach of its opposite. Meaning that if you're liberal and you're giving and no one knows, you may be accused of the opposite of what you're actually doing. You may be accused of being stingy because you have not publicized the fact that you're giving. So he says, if you are going to engage in any form of liberality, you should make a show of it. Quote, we have not seen great things done in our time except by those who have been considered mean. Interpretation. Being nice does not get the job done. Force must be exercised. Know that you must exercise iron will to push people in achieving your aims. An example of this, I recently ordered some custom furniture, a table set with chairs and a bench, as well as an entire couch set, all custom. When the chairs to the table set arrived, two of them were damaged. The merchant agreed to replace those two chairs, but after several weeks, the chairs had not been replaced, and he kept on saying they're coming or they'll be there in a couple days. Eventually, I realized that meanness had to be used. So I reached out to this merchant and I let him know if those chairs do not come by the end of next week, then I will be returning everything, not just the table set, but the table set plus the couches. I'll return everything. I'll, res I'll expect a full refund of all of my money down to the penny. And if there's anything less, I'll be suing for it promptly. You can believe that those chairs arrived very quickly after that email was sent. I started off nice, realizing that he was not playing nice. Then I showed that I could be forceful or mean, you might say. Carrying on to the next quotation. Quote, whilst you, excuse me, quote, whilst you exercise liberality, you lose power to do so and so become either poor or despised. In avoiding poverty, a prince should guard himself above all things against being despised and hated. And liberality leads you to both. Therefore, it is wiser to have a reputation for meanness, which brings reproach without hatred. End quote. Page 96. Interpretation. I believe this is best understood in that having a reputation for meanness means that you will be praised when you are liberal. But... It will not be expected, which is in your favor. Conversely, if you're known for liberality and fail to be liberal, then you will be disliked for it. The application of this is that you seek to be known for your thrift, and then you make a show of any level of liberality. For example, if your significant other knows you to be thrifty, but you spend liberally on her birthday, the impact will be much greater than if you are constantly, or I should say consistently, spending liberally. Hence, you get a greater value for your dollar. Going on to chapter 17, concerning cruelty and clemency, and whether it is better to be loved than feared. Is it better to be loved or feared? Quote, it may be answered that one should wish to be both, but because it is difficult to unite them in one person, 
it is much safer to be feared than loved when either of the two must be dispensed with. Because this is to be asserted in general of men that they are ungrateful, fickle, false, cowardly, covetous, and as long as you succeed, they are truly and entirely yours. They will offer you their blood, their property, their life, and their children, as is said above, when the need is far and distant. But when it approaches, they turn against you. Interpretation. Love can fade and change by the inclination of the other person. You cannot force anyone to love you. However, you can force someone to fear you. Fear allows you to be in control. When you are successful, everyone wants to be around and supposedly they support you. But if you're successful, you don't actually need their support. That's why they offer it. But if you were to fall and call upon those favors that were proposed, you'd find that their words held no truth. Application. It is well, it is all good and well to make friends, but let it be known that you are willing to be cruel and also ensure that this is actually the truth, meaning that not only people know you're willing to be cruel, but you will and have been cruel before. They know it's real. Having clear goals is hugely important as you reflect on who needs to love and fear you. Your goals will tell you who those individuals and groups are that you must influence. Those individuals and groups whom you must make fear you and or love you. Quote, a prince ought to inspire fear in such a way that he avoids hatred because he can endure very well being feared whilst not being hated, which will always be as long as he abstains from the property of his subjects and from their women. But when it is necessary for him to proceed against the life of someone, he must do it on proper justification and for manifest cause. But above all things, he must keep his hands off the property of others, because men more quickly forget the death of their father than the loss of their patrimony. This one is very meaningful. I'll give you the interpretation almost line by line. It says a prince must inspire fear in a way such that he avoids hatred. Machiavelli constantly points out the fact that you cannot be hated. When people hate you, they will act against you. Their hate will override their fear. It says, because he can endure very well being feared whilst he is not hated. Now, this is the part that's important right here. It is as follows. Which will always be as long as he abstains from the property of his subjects and from their women. When you mess with people's property or their woman, that will definitely inspire hatred. I cannot tell you how many times I've heard of people messing with someone else's wife or girlfriend or even love interests and that coming to blows or much worse. Do not mess with other men's women. It can get you killed and at the least it will begin the hatred for you. But when it is necessary for him to proceed against the life of someone, he must do it on proper justification and for manifest cause. What he's saying that is if a ruler decides to take someone's life, he needs to actually make it appear as though he's putting the person through due process. You know, give them a trial, accuse them of a crime, convict them of a crime. 
so that the observers think, okay, you know, that was a fair process. Even if it wasn't, it must appear that there's proper justification. It must appear that there is manifest cause. And then again, he reiterates that the prince must keep his hands off of the property of others. And he says this in a way that's very emphatic. He says, people will sooner forget the death of their father than the loss of their patrimony. Patrimony is like the inheritance from your father. So that is to say that, you know, low key, you might as a prince execute someone's father, but if you took their inheritance that the father was going to give to them, they'd probably be more pissed off about that, which is to say people are extremely selfish. Their property, the things that they think belong to them are things that they hold on to fiercely. And you do not want to get in the way of that psychological attachment to things and to love and to their woman. Application. Inasmuch as is respectful, I do not even address the women of my friends. There's no need to compliment them or build any significant relationship. If I do say something, I want to make sure that that male friend is present. Women have been the fall of many a great man. And if you check out my book, The Black Box, you'll find many stories in which women have created very dangerous situations for myself and many others. Moving on to chapter 18, the faith of a prince. A ruler should alternate between being a fox and a lion. The fox as an animal represents being cunning, being slick, outwitting and tricking your opponents. Being a lion represents using force, brute force, strength, you know, all of the power of the state and crushing someone. So if you thought of these two figures in terms of boxers, a fox is like Floyd Mayweather slipping and ducking and, you know, doing all of these tactics to get the job done. A lion is very straightforward, is vicious and, and very, you know, ruthless and direct. But you must be able to play both sides of the coin as necessary. Quote, be a great pretender or dissembler. Men are so simple that he who seeks to deceive will always find someone who will allow himself to be deceived. This one is so true. Disheartening, though. He says, be a great pretender and dissembler. Men are so simple, which is basically saying, you know, most people walking around the planet Earth are brain dead. And if you pretend or put up a front that they want to see, they will go along with it. It says, he who seeks to deceive, meaning someone who wants to trick someone or fool someone or con someone, will always find someone who will allow himself to be deceived, which is that there are many, many fools who are seeking to see something that is not there. And I'll give you an example. Consider Jim Jones, the preacher who purported to heal with his hands. Those in his congregation wanted themselves to be healed, so they wanted to believe that he could heal. So in terms of applying this, the key is to look for the audience that wants to buy what you are selling. Obviously, it was proven that Jim Jones's healings were fake, but that didn't matter to the people who were watching because they 
wanted to be healed. So they wanted to see him as a healer. Go and find the people who are looking for what you're trying to show them. Page 104, quote, Alexander never did what he said. Cesare never said what he did, end quote. This is to say that some leaders dissemble or pretend when they said Alexander never did what he said. You know, they say certain things to give them an advantage, although they might not do that thing. Then you have other leaders like Cesare. It says he never said what he did, which is to say that he made his moves on the low, under cover, under darkness, so that he was very subtle and people could not predict what he would, would do, nor did they know what he did do, probably until it was too late. I think in, in inhabiting the position of both of these leaders, you'll be very effective. People will never be able to figure you out. And you'll always be able to get the advantage. It says Alexander never did what he said. You might say, well, if someone's a habitual liar, why would anyone trust them? Well, it's because of the earlier quote. There are always those people who are looking for certain things to be true. So if you tell them what they want to hear, they will go along with it. Page 104, continuing the next quote. It is unnecessary for a prince to have all the good qualities I have enumerated but it is very necessary to appear to have them, to appear merciful, faithful, humane, religious, upright, and to be so, but with a mind so framed that should you require not to be so, you may be able and know how to change to the opposite. It's a very powerful quote because it's basically saying you want to appear merciful, faithful, humane, religious, all these things, but you should also have it in you to be the opposite of these things. What's the opposite of humane? To torture, to be vicious. What's the opposite of religious? To be like the devil. So Machiavelli is basically saying that you want to look like a good guy, but inside of you be willing to be the bad guy as needed. Page 105, quote, You have to understand this, that a prince, especially a new one, cannot observe all the things for which men are esteemed, being often forced in order to maintain the state to act contrary to fidelity, friendship, humanity, and religion. The prince is, excuse me, Machiavelli is essentially saying that the way that a statesman or a leader conducts business, those ethics are different than the personal morality that an individual would engage in when engaging interpersonally with other individuals. As a leader, you have to do things that may be considered immoral, though they may be ethical. Uh, by ethical, meaning that you are abiding by your obligation to protect the organization you're running or the state, which is if you're a prince, you are the state, right? You are the government. So protecting your own power is an important thing. So you have to do what it takes to protect your own power to maintain stability in your state. That is ethical. That's one of your chief aims. Um, I forget which king. I want to say it was King Louis says, um, I am the state, <laughs> which is true if you're a monarch. Um, but I do want to point out for you engaging in your life as an individual in a society, similar to the way I am, 
the important message here is that you should seek to be observed to have all of the qualities for which men are esteemed, right? But always be willing to act in contradiction to those qualities to advance yourself. And obviously when you do so, you want to do this under a cloak. You want to do this in a way that is not visible to many people. Page 105, quote, that the show of religion was helpful to the politician, but the reality of it hurtful and pernicious. End quote. So what he's saying is that showing that you're religious is very helpful, but actually being religious will make it extremely difficult for you to advance. And this is true. Like an example now is Ramadan. This is a time where people are fasting, but if you're fasting, it's going to adversely impact your ability to be productive during the day. It'll impact your ability to think clearly. So what he's saying is it would be very favorable for you to say that you're fasting, but not to actually fast. Page 106, quote, men judge generally more by the eye than by the hand because it belongs to everybody to see you to few to come in to touch with you. Everyone sees what you appear to be. Few really know what you are. Now, this one gives me the chills because it's just so true. And rarely do you hear something just encapsulated in such a pithy statement. Men judge more by the eye than by the hand, meaning they judge based on appearance, not based on reality. It belongs to everyone to see you, but to few to come in and touch you. So he's basically saying that everyone can see you. You can control your image, your appearance, but very few people can live with you on a daily basis and see who you really are. And that is to your advantage because it allows you to portray an image that you don't have to live up to. Chapter six. Oh, I'm sorry. I said chapter six. <laughs> This is chapter 19. And this is about that a prince should avoid being despised and hated. Quote, he who is highly esteemed is not easily conspired against for provided it is well known that he is an excellent man and revered by his people. He can only be attacked with difficulty. End quote. Page 108. This is basically saying that the utility in being well-liked is that it'll be hard for your enemies to gather folks who want to rebel against you because people speak so well of you and they think so highly of you. That's the reason that princes should avoid being despised. When you're well-liked, you're well-supported. Page 113, quote, It should be noted that hatred is acquired as much by good works as by bad ones, end quote. This is one of those funny things about life in that sometimes you do the right thing and you still get a bad outcome, which is to say in a society, for example, if you gave out, you know, even let's look at today, Trump gave out stimulus checks. He did theoretically a good thing. Uh, you have people complaining that they didn't get enough money. You have people complaining that, you know, there should be another stimulus check. It's like, even when you do something good, you can still be hated for it. So I think he's just pointing out the fact that you have to be prepared for a variety of reactions from the things that you do. 
knowing that you can never 100% predict how humankind will react to you. Um, and, and that you have to expect that there will always be a level or, or a minority group that will not agree or appreciate you. Chapter 21. How a prince should conduct himself as to gain renown. Quote, a prince is also respected when he is either a true friend or a downright enemy. That is to say, when without any reservation he declares himself in favor of one party against the other, which course will always be more advantageous than standing neutral. Because if two of your powerful neighbors come to blows, they are of such a character that if one of them conquers, you have either to fear him or not. In either case, it will always be more advantageous for you to declare yourself and to make war strenuously. Because in the first case, if you do not declare yourself, you will invariably fall a prey to the conqueror, to the pleasure and satisfaction of him who has been conquered. And you will have no reasons to offer nor anything to protect you or to shelter you, because he who conquers does not want doubtful friends who will not aid him in the time of trial. And he who loses will not harbor you because you did not willingly, sword in hand, court his fate. End quote. Page 128. Truly a meaningful passage. So many of us think that in remaining neutral, we will escape blame. Remaining neutral will escape trouble. But in remaining neutral, you actually assure yourself of trouble. Because if you remain neutral in two entities, two parties, two groups go against each other. Whoever wins is not going to like you more. Whoever wins is going to still despise you and look down on you because you didn't help them win. And then whoever lost is really going to look down on you because they lost and maybe with your help, they wouldn't have lost. So if you remain neutral you don't contribute to anyone and you will basically not have any friends, but you will assure yourself of committed enemies. Conversely, when you pick a side, if your side wins, then obviously you get the benefits of that. If your side loses, you at least know you still have that losing side as a partner, right? So, there's more benefit in joining a side, even if it loses, than remaining neutral. And that is one of the truest things I've ever heard, but it's something that does not immediately meet the eye. It's not obvious. So I'm very thankful that he explained that. And I hope that you alter your conduct based on that. Quote, one never seeks to avoid one trouble without running into another. End quote. Page 129. This is so true. In fact, I think I'll probably add this into my book. There's a story in my book in which there was a young lady who was dating a gangster and she was obsessed with me and kept pursuing me. And I told her, hey, you're, you're dating Terrell. And I essentially shut her down because I didn't want any problems, even though she was a very attractive girl. Turns out, because I kept rejecting her, she got angry and then had her older brother, who's also a gangster, show up with his friend and try to jump me. So I say that to say, as Machiavelli points out, one never avoids one trouble without running into another one. When you think you're going to successfully run 
you are going to run into a problem. A fearful mentality doesn't help. You have to stand and fight. So always be willing to pick a side and engage in war strenuously. Chapter 22, Concerning the Secretaries of Princes. Page 133, quote, To keep his servant honest, the prince ought to study him, honoring him, enriching him, doing him kindness, sharing with him the honors and cares, and at the same time, let him see that he cannot stand alone. So this is important that the individual that is in the inferior position to you is not only seeing that they cannot stand alone, meaning that they won't have any power without you, but also you should make sure that this is structurally true, that within your organization, if you don't exist, nothing exists. You really need to organize things so that you are indeed the linchpin of the system. Uh, because if you're not the linchpin and you can be removed from the system and the system continues working or that person can advance to your level or higher, then you inevitably will be moved to the side. This is something I've learned through creating a lot of organizations over a lifetime that people will definitely try to set you aside so that they can advance themselves. So if you have someone who is, um, shall we say, under you, you need to make sure that they remain under you. Uh, this inspired me to write the following quotation. Quote, this is a quote from Marquette Devon Burton, the saint and the sinner. As you can see, the prince is ever watchful of the servant. There is never a moment of rest when one's head is burdened by the crown. End quote. Moving on to chapter 25, starting with page 142, the first quote we will learn from is as follows. Quote, one can also see of two cautious men, the one attain his end, the other fail. And similarly, two men by different observances are equally successful, the one being cautious, the other being impetuous. All this arises from nothing else than whether or not they conform in their methods to the spirit of the times. This follows from what I have said, that men working differently bring about the same effect, and of two working similarly, one attains his object and the other does not, end quote. This is an important passage, which is to say that you must be in tune with the times that you are in. For example, Vladimir Ilyich Prokhanov Lenin, the Russian revolutionary, tried to wage his revolution many times and it did not work. It eventually worked, but that's because he was in tune with the moment, meaning that the population, the masses were ready for a revolution at that time. You need to figure out which way the wind is blowing and then set your sail knowing that that is the direction you have to go in. So, for example, right now, if you wanted to start a movement against the LGBTQ or against feminism, this would probably be one of the worst times to do that because those two groups are extremely powerful. So instead, you should be asking how you can leverage their language, their identity, or even those actual groups to achieve your ends rather than going in direct conflict with them because right now, in this time, those groups are very strong. Another quotation, this one is page 144, quote, I consider that it is better to be adventurous than cautious. 
because fortune is a woman, and if you wish to keep her under, it is necessary to beat and ill-use her, and it is seen that she allows herself to be mastered by the adventurous rather than by those who go to work more coldly. She is, therefore, always womanlike, a lover of young men because they are less cautious, more violent, and with more audacity to command her. End quote. He talking that talk, ain't he? Machiavelli is essentially pointing out that those who are bold, those who are adventurous, those who throw cautious, caution to the wind are those who will achieve. You have to take a big risk to get a big reward. And he's saying that fortune is like a woman in that it is the one who will master her, who will take control, who's willing to be extreme and violent rather than those who are working consistently and staying focused. <laughs> it's the one who's really taking that big leap that, that will have the great win. And so that should encourage you to know it's okay to be extreme. It's okay to go super hard. That is the key to success, my friends. And with that, I end the deep analysis I've given you of The Prince by Machiavelli. But the important thing to know is that I've only given you the parts that are relevant to your life as someone who is not the ruler of a nation. And wherein I've given you direct quotes and examples, I've applied it and tried to break it down so you can understand how you can use it in your life. I also want to give you two other quotes from a work that Machiavelli produced entitled The Life of Castruccio Castracani of Lucha. And this is um, just like a, a small work that he did, but there were two important quotations. Uh, the first one, quote, He was accustomed to say that men ought to attempt everything and fear nothing, that God is a lover of strong men because one always sees that the weak are chastised by the strong, end quote. That's a quotation from Machiavelli that he writes about Castruccio, which is basically saying that, hey, don't fear anything, go hard, become strong. God loves strong men, and we see that acted out on the earth because it's the strong that oppress the weak, right? So the weaker are the ones that are always suffering, so the key is to be strong. And I could not agree more. The truth is that people respect strength. People attract to strength. There's really no pity for a weak man. Here's another quotation from page 190 of the referenced work. Quote, passing through a street, he saw a young man as he came out of a house of ill fame, blush at being seen by Castruccio and said to him, Thou shouldst, me, thou shouldst not be ashamed when thou comest out, but when thou goest into such places. End quote. Page 190. And let me say that without the Shakespearean English. You should not be ashamed when you come out, but when you go into such places. So essentially, Castruccio, uh, Castruccio saw a young man going into a brothel. It should be coming out of a brothel. And the young man looked like he was ashamed to be witnessed coming out of a whorehouse. And Castruccio wisely pointed out that there's nothing wrong with coming out. It's going in that's the problem. 
And I think that's an aphorism for life, which is to say that, you know, if you have to tell someone that, hey, you've been 30 days clean from alcohol, you know, you might be ashamed because it points to the fact that you were an alcoholic. But the fact is you're going in the right direction. That's something to be proud of. And in life, you know, many of us go into places or situations that we have no business in. But coming out of them, we should be proud So he's basically saying that, you know, use your shame to prevent you from going into bad places. When you're coming out, be happy, celebrate you're doing the right thing. So, folks, that has been hopefully an exhaustive treatment of The Prince by Machiavelli. Um, This was created specifically for a gentleman who... Uh, sent through a donation and says, hey, I need to to hear this broken down. And so we have done it. Uh, If you would like to support my work or get tremendous amounts of knowledge and game on life, on power, on advancing, on women, you can go to www.patreon.com slash the saint and the sinner all spelled out. So that's www.patreon slash the saint and the sinner, all spelled out. Hey folks, I hope that you take these lessons to heart and you apply them.